You know what you're listening to, right? Three, two, one. Uzima Health and Wellness. What the doctor say? This is Dr. K. Welcome to the show. Dr. Erica Rajo, Director of Trauma Psychology at UMC, which is University Medical Center in New Orleans. Yep. You are a native New Orleans. What do you say? New Orleans? How do we say I that? say New Orleans. <laughs> okay. I say New Orleans. Born and raised in New Orleans. So I want to get, open the floor to have you introduce yourself as someone from New Orleans. Please start us off with uh, telling us if you like beignets or not. <laughs> Oh gosh, yes. I have such a sweet tooth. I love beignets. I just had beignets last week, actually. Tell us some of your fondest memories about growing up in New Orleans. Oh, wow. Of course, the food, but music. I love music. And I've been going to see live music since I was very young. My dad was a lover of um, local music. And so he would take me to see music all around the city and going to like French Quarter Fest and Mm -hmm. Jazz Fest Mm -hmm. and all the festivals, really. So music and food, of course, but really just the people here. And obviously, as a psychologist, you know, you have to be a lover of people. And here in New Orleans, just the sense of community and the richness of culture, all of that. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but those are all the things that I love about the city and what brought me right back after school. Where did you go to college? So I went to Loyola University, New Orleans. I stayed here um, as a freshman, though. Katrina hit. So I was about to start and Katrina hit. Loyola shut down. So I went to, I evacuated to Richmond, Virginia. I went to school there for a semester at Virginia Commonwealth University until Loyola reopened and I came right back. Well, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that I was actually an ER physician and I was working at Slidell. I was mm-hmm. on, on, on staff there, the ER physician. And oh, wow. uh, I ended up having to evacuate. And I ended up uh, staying in Baton Rouge with friends um, that are orthopedic surgeon and uh, um, obstetrician. Friends of friends who called around and said, hey, our, they called me their play daughter from San Antonio. Called friends and said she's in her car and she doesn't have a place to stay and is evacuated. And I was literally in Baton Rouge. There was a uh, Starbucks that I like to stop at. And I was just like, am I going to spend the night in my car? Because I'm too tired from my shift to make it to Houston. So anybody experienced that trauma during that time. And I think what's striking for me right now is that you have the experience of, the, of a disruption of your educational process, like our kids who experienced COVID. Being yeah. told you can't proceed with your education. How was that? It's interesting because I think since I was at a very uh, crucial period where I was about to start college, I'm also the first person in my family to go to college. So this was like a very big thing. And it was, there's a lot of buildup. And then for Katrina to really interrupt that. Yeah, I think it affected me in a lot of ways, but I, at the time was just needed to survive. So I just kind of went into like problem solving. Okay. So my cousin in Richmond got through because none of the phones, you couldn't really reach people. So someone, I got a text from my cousin fortunately, who said, I've talked to the school here, they'll take you, you can live with me. And so I kind of just did that. And then I think it wasn't until probably even after I graduated from college that I really realized 
the impact that that had on me and how stressful that whole situation was, especially for me, because I was someone who I didn't want to leave New Orleans for college. Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay here. I wanted to stay close to my family and in the city that I loved and felt very comfortable. So I was forced to go away. And I mean, ultimately, I think that was the good thing because it gave me an indication of what it's like to be away from home for school. And then I did end up leaving by choice for grad school. Dr. Erica Rajo, we think of New Orleans as this black, white place. Mm -hmm. And that's a different sounding name. So explain your heritage. It's it's important to know how diverse New Orleans is. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. So I am the daughter of two immigrants. My dad was born in Honduras and my mom was born in Cuba and they met here in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot um, more diversity here than I think New Orleans gets credit for. But yeah, there's a big Latinx community and um, a big Vietnamese population. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what makes New Orleans such a, a wonderful city. Yeah, I heard that uh, historically New Orleans was actually called the New York of the South. Uh, The railroads met there. It's on the shore. So it did bring a lot of diversity. And the Honduras connection, I think, was through banana trades or some type of trade with South America. And so families did migrate third generation up to be part of the uh, New Orleans community. So it's very diverse. And that's what people forget about New Orleans. We know we sadly enough hear a lot about black on black crime. We hear a lot about uh, the drug problems of New Orleans, but it has been a city that's been very vibrant with commerce, been very vibrant with tourism. So I think that's uh, important for people to know. But we are your your profession actually deals with what people kind of uh, negatively associate with the city. So you are the director of trauma psychology. Mm-hmm. That's a big yeah. word. Director of Trauma Psychology, not just playing trauma, but trauma psychology. And you're so wonderful. So tell me, first of all, what does that mean? Trauma psychology. Trauma psychology is the ways in which humans respond to stressors and especially stressors that are life-threatening or have the threat of causing psychological or physical harm, severe harm. So yeah, I would say my, in my day-to-day work, I do a lot because of where I work. I work at um, a level one trauma center. I am um, seeing people who've experienced traumatic injuries and I'm seeing them pretty soon after the event. And so I'm working with people who have been victims of crime or car accidents, anything you can think of that causes a traumatic injury. But a lot of, especially lately, what I'm seeing is a lot of gunshot wounds. Okay. So you're at the University Medical Center of New Orleans, mm-hmm. and that is part of the LSU Health Science Center Department of Psychiatry. So I work for the Department of Psychiatry at LSU, but I'm housed at UMC. Um, That's where I work full time. Mm -hmm. And that's a level one trauma center there. So so post Hurricane Katrina, can you define the major players in terms of psychological help in your area of trauma psychology? Or are you the only person doing this? Oh, wow. There's, there's a lot of people who does you who do disaster mental health, who do trauma work for kids. 
and adults. I think what I'm doing is a little bit different from people in the area who have experience with trauma. So what I do is acute trauma. So right after it happened. So I literally, my office is right outside of the emergency room. And I sometimes see people in the emergency room, but I always see them if they're admitted to the hospital. Um, So they'll go through the emergency room and then they'll get admitted. I'll see them in their hospital room, which is different from mental health providers who specialize in trauma, but see people, you know, in their office, they're coming for like a therapy session, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or they're coming for some form of treatment, but that's usually farther out from the trauma. And I'm seeing them in the immediate aftermath. Let me understand this. So how long has this acute trauma program, that's how we would describe an acute trauma program that you are the director of? So we call it the trauma recovery services now, but when it started, it was very small. And I think, I know you're going to speak to Dr. Conrad at some point, and he can probably tell you exactly the year it started, but I want to say maybe 2016, 2015. And it really started because as a level one trauma center, one of the verification criteria is that all patients who come in with a traumatic injury and have alcohol in their system at the time they're admitted have to be screened for an alcohol use disorder mm-hmm. and then provided some intervention and resources related to that. And the reason for that is because of the increase in risk to suffer a traumatic injury when you're under the influence of alcohol. And so it's to provide education around that to individuals who were under the influence of alcohol when they suffered a traumatic injury. That's a requirement to be a level one trauma center. And Dr. Conrad and some of the people he worked with at the time had a great idea and thought, which was, well, we should also be screening these people for PTSD and depression because we know that there are high rates of post-traumatic stress after a traumatic injury. So at the time, uh, Dr. Conrad set it up to have a psychologist go and see all the trauma patients to screen for PTSD, depression, and alcohol use disorders if they had alcohol in their system at the time of admission. And so that's only grown that concept. We call it like a proactive screening. And that's just grown since. And the great thing about it is that, so basically at this stage, we see anyone who comes in with a traumatic injury, we see, we screen them for like I said, for trauma symptoms, for depression, for alcohol or substance use disorders, and any other related difficulties like anxiety. Mm-hmm. So once we screen them based on what they are endorsing or or what they're currently experiencing, then we provide a lot of education on common trauma reactions, um, what to look for, even if they're not experiencing it right now, where they can get help if they need it later on in their recovery process. We also provide like therapeutic interventions at the bedside. This is all in the hospital. And as you can imagine, a traumatic event doesn't just affect that one individual. That's true. They have loved ones all around them that are usually stressed because of what happened. And so we also provide support to those individuals as needed. So what I really appreciate about this service is having the opportunity to reach individuals who 
one, we know don't have access to specialized treatment services like trauma psychology services or evidence-based behavioral health interventions. And also there's stigma within their communities about accessing mental health. So because of the nature of our service, it's not a consult only, it's a built-in thing. So if you are admitted to the hospital with a traumatic injury, we're part of your team, we're coming in. Of course, we're always giving them a choice. It's not forced, right? Right. But we're saying this is available to you. And if you're open, we'd like to ask you some questions and provide you some information around this event and how you're doing, seeing how you're doing and provide any support you might need. So we get to reach people that wouldn't walk into a mental health clinic for a lot of reasons and a lot of barriers. And I really like that about the service. What do you think about the statement that you said it's not required? I mean, some of the things that we do in medicine, you know, we just know in order to heal, that's what you need. And so I can't imagine that anyone who's experienced some type of traumatic injury, let's go, you know, let's shift to gun violence. And you've been shot, you know, you've had your abdominal um, abdominal exploration, right? And let's say you've come out unscathed in terms of any type of, you know, needing to have long-term ventilator support or ICU care. Because we do see that. Got shot, explored, you're fine, you're lucky. But part of what you need is mental help at that time. Are there any laws that I'm unaware of that would stop you from just saying we have to be part of the team? We are part of the trauma team so that the person can be treated as a whole person and be receiving mental care that they shouldn't have to check that box? What do you think? What is something that that would say this can't be an automatic? I don't know about laws per se, but when I think about, like I think about trauma-informed care, which is something that I do a lot of trainings on. And a big part of trauma-informed care is recognizing that after a traumatic event, people feel a huge sense that they've lost control because of whatever it is that happened. And so it's really important to empower them to make choices about their care whenever possible. And so that's one element is that I think they should have the option because they just experienced an event that, you know, was out of their control usually and to do something and them not have a choice may only re-traumatize them. And so we want to be mindful about giving them choices as much as we can. But also not everyone is traumatized after these events. And really, in order for it to be labeled traumatic, it's subjective. And so it's up to that individual. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because based on our life experiences, our resources available to us at the time, culture, all sorts of things, how someone labels or makes meaning of an event, it varies across individuals. So one person who experienced a shooting may not experience that as traumatic. Now, when I say traumatic, I don't mean in a medical sense, because obviously that's a physical trauma, but I'm talking about psychological trauma. And there's a lot of reasons why someone might not experience a gunshot wound as traumatic. And that may be because maybe they've experienced this before. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are experiencing like a long-term trauma response and that they're kind of detached from their emotions. 
So they're not recognizing that this has impacted them. There's a number of reasons, but regardless, it's not helpful unless they want to engage. And so we really want them to know what's available to them. So we do speak to all of them, all the patients that come in with a traumatic injury Unless they say, no, 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 I'm not interested, then we we do screen them and we do provide education and resources. And we tell them about our trauma recovery clinic that they can come to after discharge. And we also have trauma survivor support groups. So we have a ton of things available that if at the time we see them, they're not interested in, we give them information so that if later down the road, they feel like they're struggling, they can always come then. So you have multiple layers of intervention points. Okay, let's say that someone does not want you to be a part of their trauma recovery team immediately. Are they able to access you after they are discharged from the hospital? Yep, absolutely. So they're given, we give all of the patients that we see um, a resource list that has information about our clinic. It has contact information, how to schedule an appointment. We also give them flyers about our trauma survivor support group with contact information and all of our services. Because again, we recognize that a trauma doesn't only affect the one individual. It affects all the systems that they um, exist in. And so we offer our services to family members or loved ones who have also been impacted by the event. So let's shift to what we're all dealing with now, and that's the trauma of gun violence in our communities. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely on the rise. I think a lack of available trauma services and mental health services in the city that has experienced a lot of trauma over the years and trauma, including natural disasters, Mm -hmm. um, you know, untreated trauma can lead to not being equipped to handle Mm -hmm. everyday life stressors and then things building up. And we talk about like someone who's experienced gun violence or has been a victim of a crime, if they aren't treated for any trauma symptoms or trauma reactions that they're having, then they might be, for example, a normal reaction to that might be hypervigilance and wanting and looking over your shoulder constantly if you've been shot before. But also that can lead to a knee-jerk response if you're carrying a gun, then you might be feel like you might have to protect yourself in situations that may or may not be actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so that can lead to more gun violence. Mm-hmm. And so getting people access to services to and destigmatizing mental health and mm-hmm. trauma recovery is so, so important, I think, to addressing some of the violence that's happening. And it's not the only solution by any means, mm-hmm. but as a trauma psychologist, that is something that I think is really important. So in summary, you're saying that New Orleans is experiencing the, the overwhelming gun violence that we're seeing across major cities and that what the acute trauma uh, recovery center or the, the, your unit that you're uh, the director of, you are able to kind of help the community at large by uh, treating these acute cases, meaning uh, someone shot, they go to the hospital, you're able to communicate with them, offer them services, and hopefully 
they won't go back into the community. And now with this kind of hypervigilance about them and unbeknownst to the family, unbeknownst to the to police, start carrying a gun, start looking over their shoulder, what you're describing as post-traumatic stress disorder, and then again, shoot somebody, therefore adding to the burden of gun violence in New Orleans as we're seeing it now. So you're hoping that this trauma unit will actually serve as a preventive strategy for gun violence for New Orleans. That's only one of the key points that the city needs to to address as it tackles gun violence. Do you ever think to yourself, um, I trained in Chicago at Cook County, and of course we were frustrated because the guns are coming from Indiana. I know that, you know, as a physician in Louisiana, I was able to work in both Texas and Louisiana. You know, sometimes they needed me in New Orleans and sometimes they needed me over in the Texas side. Do you ever think where are the guns coming from? You know, I have sometimes you just have to like stay. You can't take Ah, it all in, you know, because it would just be so overwhelming that you wouldn't be able to do what you got to do. And so I have to just focus on the aspects that I feel like I can help with. Of course, that is relevant. I do think, you know, we're seeing a lot of younger individuals who are involved in some of this um, community violence. And so I do wonder how easy it is to access guns for these young, young kids. And we've even seen, you know, in the hospital, just kids getting a hold of a family member's gun mm-hmm. and accidentally discharging the gun. And that's a whole nother thing about, mm-hmm. about, you know, why gun safety is gun safety. important. It's almost like we have, you know, you have this whole like uh, mass shooting type of gun violence then you have these accidental shootings, which we totally can prevent by gun safety education. You have intimate partner violence that has its own prevention strategies. Are you seeing more intimate partner violence in the New Orleans as well? Yes, we definitely did, especially in the height of the pandemic. And still, I know that our community partners who specialize in domestic violence and sexual assault are I know, overwhelmed and have wait lists. And so this is definitely a problem that continues to be on the rise. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I kind of want to go back to one thing and just note that by no means do I think that providing psychoeducation on trauma or addressing trauma reactions early on is the only solution. And I recognize that people aren't just shooting people for the sake of doing that. It's sometimes the only way they feel they can survive and the circumstances that they're under may warrant that. And that might be the only reason they're alive is by carrying a gun. And so I recognize that too. So I don't want to say that there's no reason that they're just carrying a gun that's reckless in and of itself. Cause I don't think that's true. I think sometimes whether it's, where they're living or the situation that they're, they've found themselves in, they have to protect themselves. But it's important to have gun safety measures in place so that even if they're experiencing PTSD, that will help not to make a rash decision that will ultimately affect the rest of their lives and 
someone else's. I mean, I think that's a good point. I don't, I don't think that this conversation, you know, can hold all the many reasons that people shoot. I think that we are, as a society, are just really frustrated, baffled. I think that we just almost have to keep making a list and checking it twice. Uh, I know Dr. Bailey has written a book on at gunpoint. He's also written a book on intimate partner violence. I think both of them speak volumes on PTSD and psychology and the psychological needs of people both before and after. And and one thing I think we all can agree on is there needs to be more uh, therapists and psychologists with boots on the ground, which brings me back to a question I wanted to get to is how are you with uh, the limitations due to COVID and the limitations in funding and the structural changes in the healthcare system after New Orleans. Again, I was there, we closed charity. I was an ER doctor sometimes and had to sit and watch a patient for two days, okay? Just make sure they wasn't suicidal because I couldn't get them transferred out to Hammond or somewhere else where there would be psychiatry uh, help. So the question is, how are you able to be effective during this time of limited resources and with COVID where, of course, it can be a problem to have contact with patients, maybe like if it wasn't a pandemic? One silver lining, I guess, of the pandemic is that we have really increased our access via telehealth. And I think that is good for so many reasons because As I mentioned before, a lot of people in our community, there's a lot of barriers to accessing mental health treatment. And one of those barriers might be transportation. And so being able to access it without leaving your home is definitely an advantage that helps us reach a lot more people and stay and keep them in treatment. Also, because the patients that I see are traumatically injured, just the physical limitations of their injuries can lead to um, inconsistency in attending their appointments with me. And so now that they can access telehealth, we can have some in-person visits. We can do um, a telehealth visit if you know they're in a lot of pain that day or they just had surgery or something like that so that we can keep it consistent. And that's definitely something that has come out of the pandemic. I mean, telehealth existed before, but I think now it's a lot more mainstream and people are more open to it um, and people are more savvy. And I think one of the things that we are really pushing for a trauma recovery center, a comprehensive trauma recovery center for is because, um, so that would expand the trauma recovery clinic services, which currently are psychiatric interventions like med management. We have psychology um, and they're doing trauma-focused therapy. So we used to have a social worker and we used to do some case management, Mm -hmm. but we don't have that anymore. And we really need a lot of case management because Mm -hmm. like I said before, the trauma itself, well, I said it doesn't affect just one person, but it's also not just the trauma itself. There's so many secondary stressors that come out of it like the physical, the financial, mm-hmm. the just navigating the medical system and the healthcare system and having to get these bills and deal with them and not knowing who to go to for what and if you need assistance. So in the trauma recovery center that we're really hoping we can get federally funded so that we can have case management so that people after when we see them in the hospital, we can connect them with a case manager who can help, who can identify 
what their needs are Mm -hmm. and not just behavioral health, but that might also include, you know, setting up physical therapy or occupational therapy or getting like a peer supporter. What else? Drug drug Um, counseling. Yes. Children's services. Maybe they have children there. Yes. Yes. Children's services. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And I mean, you you mentioned too, is like, there's so many other reasons for the increase in gun violence and, mm-hmm. and what those things are, including substance abuse, but education and treatment available to people who are struggling with substance abuse, but also employment and education opportunities. And also we mentioned education about mental health and trauma reactions. Mm -hmm. And the more, you know, knowledge is power and having that information can help you respond in a way that you can access the resources you need to move through this trauma and live a meaningful life on the other of it. Let me ask you this in terms of still staying on resources, because I think that's very important. How many inpatient psychiatric beds do you have now in New Orleans or uh, centers, at least centers? Maybe you don't know the number of beds, but can you characterize the psychiatric support that people have access to? Well, so that's an, Dr. Conrad's the numbers guy. So he'll tell you the numbers, but in terms of what the support looks like. So I'm specific to trauma. Okay. So Dr. Conrad does general behavioral health. So let um, me ask you this, as since so I can stay in your area uh, for trauma, do you ever recommend that someone stay in an inpatient trauma unit so that you can work with them more closely or all of your work ends up being outpatient? That's a good question. So let's say someone comes into the hospital with a gunshot wound. I see them when they're admitted. Um, I screen them for trauma symptoms, depression, and they are experiencing an acute stress disorder, which the symptoms are similar to PTSD. It's just about the timeline. And so if you're experiencing things like avoiding reminders of the event or avoiding thinking about the event, feelings of guilt, feeling on edge or hypervigilance, things like that, or nightmares, if you're experiencing these things, in the immediate aftermath, it's a normal reaction. But if it's to the level that's causing significant distress or impairing your functioning, then we would call it an acute stress disorder. I mean, in order for it to be PTSD, a whole month would have to pass. So half of the people who are diagnosed with an acute stress disorder, they fully recover. They don't go on to develop PTSD and about half do. So I think that's important to recognize because there are a lot of people who, I mean, everybody has strengths and resilience factors, but it just is do the resources you currently have, are they enough to help you get through the current circumstances? Sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. And so if they're not, then I would say, yes, treatment's recommended. And that would typically be on an outpatient basis. It'd be like once a week for our therapy sessions. A lot of what I do in the trauma recovery clinic, we do evidence-based treatment. And so the gold standard for PTSD is prolonged exposure therapy. So we'll do that once a week. If they're open and interested in medication to help manage some of their PTSD symptoms, then we'll refer them to the psychiatrist in the clinic. But by no means is that a requirement to come to the clinic. And then anytime 
someone is at risk of, you know, harming themselves or someone else, Mm -hmm. or they're so severely distressed that they can't take care of themselves, then that's when I would say inpatient is indicated. So you're one person. How big is your team? Well, currently it's not as big as I would like it to be. And if we get the funding to expand, then I will be able to grow the team so that we have more uh, services available. Right now, we have two psychiatrists in the clinic. I'm a psychologist in the clinic. I have another psychologist in the clinic. Mm-hmm. And that's on the outpatient side. On the inpatient side, we have um, all those individuals, but also trainees. So psychiatry and psychology interns, residents, and fellows who who help with the inpatient services. So, And by inpatient, I don't mean like inpatient psychiatric unit. I mean like the trauma, you know, like in the hospital when someone's admitted to the hospital with a trauma. This is part of your work and you describe this and you can tell me this is still pretty accurate that you're experiencing maybe about three to 400 trauma activations a month. Mm-hmm. Still think that's true? I think so. And that in the follow-up that you see a high prevalence of complex behavioral health comorbidities, post-traumatic stress disorder being the highest. Second would be depression. Third would be alcohol use. And also you have listed potential for violence and potential for re-victimization. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's still pretty much accurate based on the report that comes out of the clinic, that these are still some of the issues you all are dealing with? Absolutely. And it's probably increased since those numbers, since we collected that data because of the pandemic. Last question that I have is, are you modeling another system in the United States that you got this idea from? Are you part of a collaboration around the United States or New Orleans is leading the way in this very pioneering trauma recovery clinic? So it's kind of both. So we, in terms of the proposed trauma recovery center, That is an initiative that we've been collaborating with community organizers like Crime Survivors NOLA. Shout out to uh, Rose Preston and Julie Ford, who are rock stars um, and really pioneering this initiative. And then the Alliance for Justice and Safety, that is a national organization that helps to get secure federal funds for trauma recovery centers in places that really need services and resources. So that's a collaborative effort. And the trauma recovery center would be based on that national model. Mm -hmm. But we were approached by them because we were already doing the things that are embedded in that model and just independently at UMC. So we didn't even, you know, we didn't know. I mean, I'm sure we knew because we were doing these things based on research, what's helpful, what's effective, but they approached us about the trauma recovery center. And so it's been a great collaboration, but we are leading in terms of the inpatient, like proactive screening element, that preventative piece. We were, the hospital had a Um, verification, I guess, evaluation process by the American College of Surgeons, a re-verification. And they said that what we're doing with trauma psychology is not being done at any of the other trauma centers in the country and that we should serve as a 
example of best practice and that this is what they would hope would be seen at other places in the future. So that was very exciting. So what we're doing is cutting edge and we're, we're ahead of the curve. And so, but we also help others when they reach out about how to start this program at their trauma centers. And that's a a part of the job that I love to do because the more people that are doing this work, the more access people have to trauma recovery. And I mean, I don't know, dare I say the world is a better place. (laughs) I think it can get there. I think we, I mean, it takes people like you, Dr. Uh, Erica Rajo, uh, to do what you're doing. And and again, you're one person, you are in need of more um, staff and support for this very pioneering clinic, which will hopefully soon be a center and a model across the U.S. And I think that's outstanding because I think, again, people forget what a pioneering state Louisiana already is. I, I enjoyed my time there. It would have been my home had Hurricane Katrina not happened. So there are hidden gems about uh, New Orleans. There's hidden gems about the state of Louisiana that the rest of America if you're not talking to people from Louisiana or experiencing it firsthand, you just don't know. But I, I certainly could have made it my home. It's, it's, it was uh, very sad for me to leave there. But I know that there's lots of good work and a lot of hardworking people there and physicians and psychologists and PhD. I mean, there's a, a, a whole thought leadership that's coming out of New Orleans and that whole uh, hub between Jackson, Mississippi, Atlanta, New Orleans and up to Memphis. You know, we have, I think, a lot of leaders who are doing more with less. Mm -hmm. And that's why this uh, funding effort is so uh, critical. Do me a favor and tell me again, the two people that came and approached you about the clinic uh, that you wanted to give a shout out to, because I think that that's important from the element of knowing what advocacy can do, knowing what grassroots organizations can do. And so I really want to make sure that in the podcast that we get their names and their organizations out there. Yeah, so Rose Preston and Julie Ford are both crime survivors themselves, and they're with crime survivors NOLA. And yeah, their efforts have really made a huge impact on this whole initiative and getting it started and getting it to where it is now. And also with their collaboration with Aswad Thomas for the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Mm-hmm. And then Simone Levine, who's also worked with Julie and Rose. So as a team, it's really been a wonderful effort. And hopefully we accomplish our objectives. So stay tuned. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll check back in with you and we'll see how your uh, trauma recovery clinic is growing. And I definitely want to do everything I can on this platform to uplift the Department of Psychiatry at LSU and Health Science Center and uh, what you're doing over at UMC. I think that is so important for us to uh, stay abreast of all the efforts being done in this area, particularly on gun violence and just trauma recovery. There are so many areas of trauma uh, that we didn't name them all, but uh, right now this, the country's experiencing an explosion of gun violence and also intimate partner violence. And, and racial trauma, race-based trauma. There's it, a lot. It, it, the list goes on. So we'll check back in if you would uh, be so kind to give me another interview. We'll check in and see how things are progressing. What the doctor say?